Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. We are go for launch. Okay, all flight controllers, let's play it cool. All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Hello, welcome to the March edition of Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham, and I'm on my own this month while Sue is scavenging for interviews in the Mojave Desert. But that doesn't mean we're short of material. We'll be talking about the nature of space, contemplating humanity's place in the universe and meeting the new head of Mission Control, Houston. We'll also reunite an astronaut with their space shuttle. Every single time I cry, every single time, I mean, right now, even as you're, we're just like watching you experience it for the first time and talk about it. It's like, oh my gosh, it's like, it almost doesn't seem real. My guest here in Cambridge is theoretical physicist and science comedian, Dr. Fran Day. Now, I'm not going to ask you to tell a joke. Can we have a joke at the end? Yes, yes, you can have a joke at the end. Okay, excellent. Uh, Now, you study the nature of the universe. I mean, that's a pretty big subject. Um, But it's really the fact that a chunk of the universe is missing. This is this idea of dark matter. That's right. We understand about 5% of the energy in the universe. About a fifth of the energy in the universe is in dark matter. This is matter that we know exists because we can see its gravitational pull on other matter. But we don't know anything else about it. It doesn't seem to interact with light. It doesn't show up in any of our experiments. So we just don't know what it is. Uh, Why is it called dark matter? Is that just because it's dark or another reason? Basically just because it's dark. It doesn't interact with light, so it just looks the same as... Oh, I know, we'll call it dark. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's an inventive naming. Um, And I guess it sounds, you know, mysterious and edgy. Now, and the reason we're talking about this is there's a new European Space Agency mission, Euclid. And this, according to the website, designed to map the geometry of the dark universe. I don't really understand what that means. Euclid is trying to measure exactly the distribution of dark matter in the universe. And it's also trying to measure dark energy. Dark energy is about 70% of the energy in the universe. And it's even more mysterious than dark matter. Dark energy tries to explain why the universe is accelerating. The expansion of the universe is accelerating and we don't know why. There must be some extra energy almost pulling it apart. And that's dark energy. So Euclid's going to measure measure the effects of dark matter and dark energy on galaxies and map them out that way. So we can look at the effects of this. I, I mean, is it, is it like a, a structure? Can we imagine it as a structure holding things together? Sort of. Dark matter is like a structure holding things together. People talk about the cosmic web because dark matter forms a sort of web throughout the universe. It's not uniform everywhere. 
it clumps together and a galaxy is actually a clump of dark matter into which things like visible matter fall and then there's stars. Dark energy, on the other hand, we think is uniform everywhere. Uh, are they any use to us? I mean, is this something that it would just be good to know that you're right? Or is this something that actually, you know, the same way that matter is useful, <laughs> this could be useful? Mostly we just want to know that we're right. It's less likely to be useful than matter just because it interacts so weakly. And the things that we use are things that we can interact with easily. Having said that, there's so many things in physics that nobody thought would be any use. You know, famously, no one thought the electron would be of any use, that it's just not possible to say what um, technologies might be making use of dark matter in the future. Now, we can infer this is there, but we can't, we obviously can't see it by mm. its very nature. Uh, does that mean it is necessarily there, or is it just a kind of excuse because we don't know what the rest of the universe is made up of? Until we do find it in an experiment, it's not possible to say sort of for certain, as with every theory in science, actually, all we have is our is our best theories. But we're, we're very sure there's lots and lots of data on how stars are moving in galaxies, how galaxies are moving in galaxy clusters. When we look at how structures are formed in the universe, this can all be explained by the existence of dark matter. And if you don't have that one key ingredient, it's very, very hard to explain all of this stuff. So I think dark matter is the simplest explanation. So if you can't see it, how do you map it? Euclid is going to look at galaxies. Galaxies are a really great way to probe the universe because there are loads and loads of them, millions and billions, and they're everywhere. Euclid's going to look at the shapes of galaxies. This is because dark matter shows itself through something called gravitational lensing, where when light passes near a, a heavy object, it actually bends slightly. And by looking at the shapes of galaxies, we can map that bending of light because the galaxies get sort of squidged and stretched because of all of the dark matter on the path between the galaxy and us. So by looking at the, the squidginess of all of these galaxies, we'll be able to see quite precisely where all of the dark matter is. That's a fantastic way of describing it, the squidginess of, <laughs> squidginess of galaxies. That won't actually tell us whether it is dark matter. But we know there is something yeah. there and it will enable us to, to map out where this thing is. Yeah, so it will tell us where the mass is. It won't tell us what that mass is. We'll be able to infer that it's something dark by the fact that we can't see it in other ways. But what it won't tell us is much about the identity of dark matter from a particle physics point of view. It is extraordinary. Well, Fran, we'll talk more uh, later on. Now, since 1965, every American astronaut launching into space has relied on the skills and expertise of the men and women in Mission Control Houston. Whether they're making history... We copy you down, Eagle. ...or having a bad day at the office. Hey, uh, we've had a problem here. In the 1960s, only white men sat at the consoles in Mission Control, overseen by the likes of Chris Craft and Gene Krantz. Today, it's way more diverse, but the job remains much the same. When I was at the Johnson Space Centre Houston recently, I met up with the new head of Mission Control. Holly Writings, and I'm the NASA Chief Flight Director. 
Can you just give us a sense of what we're looking at here? Because we're overlooking the main control room for the International Space Station. And people will be familiar with the layout. You've got the, the desks with the acronyms written over the top. I don't know all of them. There's some one very obvious ground control, one less obvious ethos, ISO, uh, PAO. I think that's public affairs officer, yes. flight surgeon at the back. And then we're almost on a balcony overlooking this control room and then you've got on the screens we've actually got an astronaut on the space station doing experiments actually taking pictures of plants growing on the space station i think now assessing the health of those plants on the space station and then a map at the center of where the space station is currently somewhere over the uh, pacific ocean indian ocean indian ocean at the moment um so this is really your this is this is yours this is what you oversee it's one of my favorite places um, in the entire world, uh, Mission Control here at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. And so, like you said, uh, this team down here is uh, watching over the International Space Station, uh, the crew members on board. Uh, this ground team is responsible for the safety of those crew members and the safety of the vehicle they're living in, uh, ISS, and, of course, all of the vehicles that uh, come to and leave from the ISS. The team down here does a lot of the uh, operating of all of the systems on the space station. Uh, so you said ethos a few minutes ago. Those guys are very important. They're our life support uh, officers. Uh, they make sure we've got uh, scrubbing of CO2, the right amount of oxygen to breathe. Uh, if we have an emergency on the space station, uh, that flight controller uh, sitting at that console is really the first line of defense. Uh, the crew members on board have their procedures as well, but they work in concert with the team down here. And the idea behind the International Space Station is science, right? And so the team down here really uh, organizes and plans their day, helps them with any problems, um, and tries to take care of the systems on the space station, allowing them to do the science, such as the plants you described. What strikes me, you look at the, you know, the traditional pictures of mission control back in the 60s with the Apollo era, Gemini and Apollo era, when this control room was, was first conceived, the idea of a control room for missions was first conceived. Everyone in it is uh, uniformly white male in their 20s, generally white shirts and ties. You look at this control room, yeah, the technology has changed, but the diversity is completely changed. I mean, look at this, just in terms of the male-female mix, it's about 50-50. Yes, and, and I'll tell you, that this is a pretty typical day. Um, any day you walk in here, you're going to see uh, all different types of, of diversity. Uh, NASA, in general, uh, very uh, positive and forward-thinking in that area, and ethnic diversity, gender diversity. And also, you know, I talk about functional diversity when I think of uh, technical work, different systems, launch vehicles, on-orbit vehicles, different backgrounds and experiences that everyone brings to, to make the best decisions. And so, you know, it's something we very, very much believe in, and you can see that reflected in the room in front of you. At what point did that change? Because it has taken NASA a while. If you go back to the, the 1960s, the, the Soviet Union had a a woman as, a, as an astronaut. The uh, United States rejected women as an astronaut. It wasn't until 1983 that Sally Ride flew in space. Has it been a sort of catching up? Um, I don't know that it was catching up. I actually think of NASA as kind of being on the leading edge of, of that type of thing. Um, when you look at a lot of, you know, elite, high reliability, you know, high stress, life and death organizations, you know, NASA is really leading in, in that area. I, I more think about it in terms of availability. 
Um, now there's a lot more uh, folks who are available, again, with those different backgrounds and diverse backgrounds, you know, than there were before. So I, I actually think the the world is catching up a little bit with how NASA thinks in terms of wanting diversity in every area because it makes us more effective doing our jobs. So you say you've got a, a wider pool to recruit from? Yes, definitely a way to think about it. Uh, and in terms of just the, the technical side of mission control, how has that changed since the, the early days in terms of the, the structures that were set up by Chris Craft, of which this whole building is, is named after? I mean, really, your predecessor. Yeah, you said Dr. Craft. He is, he is an amazing person. I had lunch with him at the beginning of the summer, and you can just still learn so much from him. You know, he did set it up a lot this way where you have a ground team, you know, that, that takes care of – uh, the crew on board the space station and the vehicle, you know, sort of three legs of a stool. In some ways, a lot of it has not changed. You know, they had a Capcom, a capsule communicator. We still use that name today, even though we're flying a, a space station who talks to the crew, sometimes an astronaut, sometimes someone who's intimately familiar with their part of the job. Um, we have people taking care of the different systems. What has changed over the years is the available technology. So if you take the space shuttle and compare it to the space station, well, we have a lot more automation, of course, than the shuttle did. Uh, the ability to send commands from the ground. Um, we can do our robotics, actually move the robotic arm, you know, here from the ground. And again, with science being, you know, the primary goal of the space station, that allows us to use uh, the time of the astronauts and cosmonauts on board to accomplish it. So, uh, you know, I think the future, again, incorporating the, the growth and the changes in technology will be, you know, something we'll continue to do. What, what, you sat down, you said you sat down with, with Chris Craft. What did, you, what did you learn from him? Because he, he really came up with this, I mean, I've read his, his autobiography. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sounds like, I mean, a formidable person by, by all accounts <laughs> he's definitely formidable um, yes well, well you know but he set up this concept he, he i mean in doing so probably saved lives of astronauts and kept the kept the program on track to reach the moon what did you learn from him yeah so you know he started out of course as a as a test engineer right before the johnson space center existed and then came here and really sort of stood up you know this entire environment um so you know, one of the things you can learn from him is is the test engineer mentality, um, which is really, you know, know, know your technical um, system, you know, know your stuff, you know, be the very, very best. And so whenever you talk to him, you know, he always goes back to that, you know, your competence at a technical level and knowing the answer to the right problem and being able to think about the problems, you know, will save, uh, you know, lives when you need it to. Um, so step one, sort of just be the best flight test engineer mentality, right? The second one is is leadership. We saw problems in here every day and on the space station and with all of the other spacecraft that we that we fly and, and interact with that that no one's seen before. I mean, you talked about uh, the abort that we had with the Soyuz. Um, it has happened. Uh, once before a very long time ago, but, but that's not not, a, a, not in the current era where you're <laughs> exactly. cooperating with the Russians. Exactly. So you know, not a not a thing you see every day. And and we're a group of people that that like to solve problems like that. You know, instead of instead of running away from it um, because it is you know it's scary. It's spaceflight, right? Um, people run towards that. They want to help. They want to to work. They want to you know figure it out and make it better. And and you know all of us learn that 
from Dr. Kraft. There is no problem that you cannot, you know, get this smart team together and tackle. And it permeates our entire culture. You know, and so I kind of bucket that into leadership. And I'd say the third thing, when I asked him personally, I was, um, you know, starting to, to think about doing this job and, and had been doing it as a uh, acting or temporary for a while, is patience. You know, you recruit the very best and the brightest, and you want them to do amazing things. And so give them the room to do that. You know, you don't, you don't tell them how to do it every day. You know, there's more than one way to solve a problem and get to the right answer. And so, so give, them, give them that opportunity to be autonomous and, and to master, you know, their system and their, uh, their job and their role, and it gives them a real sense of purpose. I mean, the other there are lots of legends who've come through this con- this control center. I mean, the other one, famously from Apollo thirteen, is is Gene Kranz, mm-hmm. and he, he's attributed to him whether he said it or not. It's, it's unclear. This failure is not an option. Is that still an ethos, or is uh, can failure be be useful? Because I, I wondered. I'm quite interested in the idea of failure. You know, it's interesting. So I, I saw uh, Mr. Kranz a few weeks ago as well, and, and you know, both both he and Dr. Kraft and, and many of the other folks we're talking to, you know, they're still here and, and mentor and, and put a tremendous amount of energy back into the system. And so, you know, we're very lucky to have them, uh, you know, around and, and helping us out. You know, your, your question was about failure is not an option. So um, I say we absolutely still have that mentality. If you walk around the building – um, you see things like our foundations of mission operations, toughness, competence. You know, that list started after the Apollo 1 fire. And the story goes, you know, that happened and, you know, Gene Kranz comes in and addresses the team and, and talked about those things. You know, we're going to get back to flying. We're going to be tough. We're going to be competent. You know, there is nothing we cannot do. And so from that perspective, failure is definitely not an option. You know, on the other side, it's spaceflight. You're doing one-of-a-kind things. And just like we saw with the Soyuz um, anomaly, the abort anomaly, you know, things do happen. And so we also have a mentality to learn from that failure. Everything you can, again, with the idea of not allowing it to happen again, but also being prepared. So it's a little bit of two sides of the same coin. You go in with your preparation and your planning and the attitude that you're not going to fail. If something happens unexpected, you immediately jump on it and learn everything you can and, and put the pieces back together and keep on flying. Isn't she great? NASA's Chief Flight Director, Holly Ridings. I've actually written that now at the top of my notes. No problem you can't tackle. I mean, what, what do you think, uh, Fran? Do you think you could work there? Probably. Um, it's, it sounds like an amazing job, an amazing environment, very high pressure. I like the idea that there's no problem you can't tackle. You know, when I'm, when I'm doing my work as a, as a physicist, there's some pretty tough problems that you have to think about for a very long time and then you do solve them eventually. But they're not life or death in the same way. So I think I might find it a bit more challenging than my, my job as a theoretical physicist. Uh, what she was, was saying uh, when we were chatting before that interview, that they'd, they'd recently before that they'd had the, uh, what she called the anomaly with Soyuz, mm. where uh, it failed to, to reach orbit, came back in this ballistic trajectory. And I said, well, the, you know, mission control just looked really calm because people, you know, sitting at their consoles, moving around a little bit. She said it was exactly the same. When, when that happened. I think that's that's the thing is you've got to have that men, mentality where you're calm all the time. Yeah, I think that is the key. You just, it must be so difficult, but you just can't panic because even if it's a legitimate emotional response, it doesn't help anyone. 
Yeah, I think I'd have that. If I was if I was running Mission Control, it would be Don't Panic across the top. <laughs> this is Space Boffins. My guest is Fran Day. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, well, probably, or email us info at boffinmedia.co.uk. A quick mention for Mick Bremner on Facebook, who wants more Space Boffins. Thanks, Mick. And uh, Michael McCluckland, 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 we think that's McCluckland, who has an excellent suggestion for a podcast on giant rockets. And that is something we will definitely do in the future. Uh, I should also mention the fabulous Hayden, who sent us a couple of beautiful matchbox starships, which have been added to the general space clutter in the office. I will put some pictures up of the general space clutter in the office. I should also mention that Sue's book on Mercury 13 aviator Wally Funk is now out in the US. It's got a great cover as well. It's called Wally Funk's Race for Space. It is a really lovely read. And uh, if you like space, aliens and space aliens, uh, our documentary, So Where Are the Aliens, on BBC World Service. Uh, It's going to be there forever, pretty much, on the website. Uh, If you Google, uh, I quite like this, if you Google So Where Are the Aliens, question mark, the first thing that comes up is our programme. A new occasional feature now where we reunite astronauts with space hardware. I've been working with the fabulous astronaut Nicole Stott on a BBC World Service documentary ahead of the Apollo 11 anniversary. Now, Nicole flew two space shuttle missions to the International Space Station and returned from the station after her first mission on Space Shuttle Atlantis. We're in the heart of the Kennedy Space Centre visitor complex and what you just heard was a large sort of like a garage door opening up, a screen coming up and then hordes of people coming out because they're looking at what's revealed to them is the space shuttle, space shuttle Atlantis. But it's not on the floor of the Kennedy Space Centre visitor complex. It's up as if it were in space. It's hanging from the the ceiling in this vast hall. And Nicole Stott, astronaut, you flew on this space shuttle. Does it still get you? I mean, there there was the music, the music kind of building. There was a very, very emotional sort of response. And, you know, I kind of felt a bit of a tingle there. And you've come back from the space station on this. Yeah, there. I've, I've done this multiple times, coming through that reveal. Every single time I cry, every single time. I mean, right now, even as you're, we're just like watching you experience it for the first time and talk about it. It's like, oh my gosh, it's like, it almost doesn't seem real. And you look at it, it is, it really is one of the most beautiful, graceful looking spaceships that you can imagine. And the payload bay doors are open with their silver radiators shining in front of you. You see the whole big cargo bay, just like it would be if you were in space. You can kind of peek down into the the windows on the, the crew compartment deck. And I just, like, imagine myself inside of it is what I see. And what's surprising, I think, when you see it on the ground, uh, it almost looks small compared to the... The, the boosters and the, t- the giant tank it's attached to. But when you see it here revealed, you realise just how vast this cargo bay is and how much you can, you can fit in that. I mean, we're talking big, big articulated truck. Yeah, this, this vehicle, um, you know, Atlantis and then the other space shuttles in the fleet, 
were the vehicles that we used to build the International Space Station. So all of those sections of the space station you see fit inside of this, you know, this payload bay or this cargo bay of this truck, I guess you could say. And, uh, you know, some of those are 40 feet long and they can weigh up to, you know, 40,000 pounds. I mean, they're heavy things. And uh, I know I I look at it and um, when it's in this position, like it would be, you know, with the doors open and kind of angled, like it would be flying against the horizon of of the earth, you just, it, it feels alive. It feels like it should be working and doing things in space still. And in terms of the the, the crew area, you can, we can see the, the windows, you can see where just about, actually if you peek down, it's quite lit inside, so you can see where the commander and the pilot would sit. But there's quite a lot of space below, because the actual hatch, the, the way in, is below where it says Atlantis. So it's quite actually, the crew compartment is quite sizable, sort of, it's a top deck and a, and a mid deck. Yeah, so and that's exactly what we called it was the, you know, the flight deck above where you had the pilot commander seat and then two other mission specialists would sit up there and all the controls for how you fly the vehicle are there. And it's kind of cool because there's controls at the front where you would normally sit, you know, launching, landing, but then there's controls out the back side as well. So you could fly the space shuttle from the back, you know, control panel, which was kind of neat. And then yeah, underneath that is what we call the mid deck. And that's where we had the galley and you know, all kinds of things just shoved into every corner and stowed wherever you could possibly get it and uh, and where we would sleep. You know, we'd stick our sleeping bags up all over the walls and, you know, I always chose the ceiling because where else can you sleep on the ceiling than in space? And it really is quite... I don't know if large is the word, but it's it's spacious in a way that you don't expect when you're down on the ground because down here you can just stand on the floor or sit in the seats. But in space, you're floating. You can use the entire volume. So when we would dock with the International Space Station, for instance, we had all seven crew members, all six or seven crew members up on the flight deck, just floating in different places, you know, sitting in the seats, floating on the ceiling, looking out the back. And you felt comfortable doing that. Nicole Stott at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex in Florida. And uh, you can understand why we asked Nicole to present a World Service program for us. Uh, That's going to be on the Apollo missions and more details coming next month. Um, Fran, you're you're quite a lot younger than me, let's be honest. Um, (laughs) But the the space shuttle, I mean, it's a pretty remarkable machine. Yeah, it was really kind of amazing just to... Just to think about people going up in it into space was so cool. When I was kind of getting into physics, to be able to see, you know, look up and see the stars and think, oh, well, there's also, also there's people up there. It's just brilliant. Well, that's what's so amazing now with the, the space station. Mm. I mean, there are only three people up there, but there have been people up continuously mm. in space for now. We're getting into 19 years. I mean, that's pretty incredible. We're starting to become a spacefaring civilization. Yeah, and I think one of the things that came out of that interview was that astronauts also think it's amazing. <laughs> you know, they're not blasé about their job at all. You, know, you just retain that sense of wonder. Uh, I did trail at the beginning, Fran, that you are also a science comedian. Um, so you have a joke. I mean, you have to say, most of your stand-up, and you can see uh, Fran's stand-up on YouTube and, and various other places, uh, most of it's life experiences, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I mostly just report things that happen to me. <laughs> so, uh, but you've got a joke. 
Yeah, I should say I didn't write this joke. Somebody told it to me. Um, but my science-based joke is uh, a woman comes home and she finds her string theorist husband in bed with another woman. And she says, what are you doing? I want a divorce. And he says, but honey, I can explain everything. Yeah, OK. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Fran. That was great. Uh, thank you very much for uh, for being our guest, explaining dark matter, dark energy. Uh, thank you for listening. Space Boffins is a Boffin media production in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Uh, before we go, a sneak preview from that programme that Nicola is presenting. This month marks the 50th anniversary of the flight of Apollo 9, the first test in Earth orbit of the lunar lander and spacesuits that astronauts would use on the surface of the moon. During the mission, lunar module pilot Rusty Swikart had the opportunity to look down at the Earth. And here's how he describes the experience. Hey, Mr. Swikart, proceed out the door. Good, your camera on there, CMP? It's running. Okay. You know, when I went out uh, on my EVA and then um, had that five minutes while Dave tried to unsuccessfully fix the uh, movie camera, um, I mean, for whatever reason, and I think, it, you know, I I have to give a little credit to Bill Anders and Apollo 8 on that, but, you know, I decided that that five minutes uh, I was going to take not as an astronaut but as a human being and just let that experience come in right through the spacesuit. You know, I was just a human being, a, a farm kid from New Jersey, hanging out there in space, and I wanted to just say, you know, what is, let this really come through. What is it? What's happening? How did I get here? All of these questions suddenly came flooding in as soon as I went into that sponge mode. And, you know, the big question was, wait a minute, what do I mean by I when I say, why am I here? How did I get here? What am I doing here? I'm really not talking about I. I'm talking about we, because it's humanity that is clearly moving out from the earth. I just happen to be a representative of it. And in the realization of that came with it the understanding that I had a responsibility to bring that experience back down to the people that I represented. I mean, I, I, at, at the time, I kind of declared myself to be a sensing element, you know, sort of, you know, uh, like an eyeball and a set of ears and eyes out on the end of a finger, you know, out there as humanity begins to move out of the womb of, of planet Earth, of, of Mother Earth. So anyway, it's, it, to me, that was the beginning of what I call uh, cosmic birth. I mean, this is really, in a historic sense, humanity beginning to move out into the larger cosmos. And we're all amazingly lucky to be living at this rather historic moment in the evolution of life in our little corner of the universe. Oh, well, I love you. Hey, there's a moon right over there.